Let's ask our Lord to help us now as we open together Judges chapter 8. Our God, our Father, our Lord, our King, Holy Spirit, our Comforter, we bless you and we praise you. We ask now for your help as we give our attention to the hearing and the preaching of your word. Will you grant to me clear utterance? Give to me the power of your Spirit to proclaim boldly unapologetically and faithfully, the very words of Christ. Give to all of us as hearers the grace of not only being able to discern the words themselves, but cause them to have an impact on our hearts, our minds, our affections, to shape us and conform us and mold us by your Spirit's work into the very image of our Savior, that we might love him more and love one another more, and become the light to the nations that you have caused us to be. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you're taking your seat, will you open once again to the book of Judges? The book of Judges. We're, we're now in really the third, sort of the third stanza of this narrative regarding Gideon. Gideon, of course, I... A well-known story in the book of Judges, a well-known story in all of the book of the Bible. The title of today's sermon is Victory Brings Its Own Temptations. It was about 12 years ago, almost probably about this same time of the year, about six months or so after we had planted GFBC Conroe, I remember having a conversation with, with Vody, and I, I just commented that, oh, you know, planting a church really reveals your weaknesses, doesn't it? And he just kind of chuckled, and he said, yeah, man. And then you also discover that even your strengths are your weaknesses. And that was one of those ouch kind of, of moments, but he was exactly right, and, and I've come over the years to know more and more of, of how true that is. And today we can observe, as we look at the very last paragraph of chapter 7 and then the chapter 8, there's an excellent case study here in the book of Judges regarding Gideon about this very dynamic that sometimes we think that temptations and sorrows and difficulties are a product of our negative circumstances, and that if we could only have a certain kind of victory, then those temptations would go away. But Gideon teaches us that that isn't so. In fact, with victory comes a whole new set of temptations and challenges. Last week, we observed the weakness of Gideon. We've seen this over the last two weeks. His, his timidity, his fearfulness, his, his weak faith as the Lord prepared him to go down against Midian and, and what appeared to be Gideon's, or Midian's overwhelming army. And by human reason, by human effort, it certainly was an overwhelming army. But, but today, we're going to see different set of weaknesses entirely that come as a direct result of a victory. In Gideon and among his countrymen, following the Lord delivering Midian into Gideon's hand, we see provocations to new sins, new temptations. And while we, we rejoice together at the victory that God had given to Gideon and given to his people, we're also left longing for a deliverer who would not be so engulfed by these common infirmities. We're, we're, we're left longing for a deliverer who would not share the same kinds of temptations and weaknesses that we have, that we submit ourselves to. So in Judges 8, we, we, ought to, we ought to rejoice that God has delivered his people, but at the same time, we need to take note of a warning here. There's a warning here. Temptation to sin against our God can just as surely come in a season of victory, in fact, maybe even more so than in a season of hardship. Have you ever found yourself thinking, for example, that you would be less tempted to greed or covetousness if only God would improve your financial situation? Or maybe you thought as a single person, that if I could just get married, I won't struggle with lust or temptation to sexual immorality anymore. 
Or maybe you've thought that your temptations towards sloth or anger or slander would go away if you had a different boss or a different company for, for whom you worked. And then you find out, well, got this great new job, and I still have the same old sin, or maybe even new temptations to sin. Each one of us possesses, I think, a sense of a sort of a latent, um, can we call it a virus, of, of prosperity gospel. We, all of us have just a little bit of that tendency. That's why it's so attractive. That's why literally stadiums and, and huge buildings are full of people who, who want that, those kinds of, of ear-tickling messages that God wants you to have these things, and in these things, your heart will be made right. But it isn't true, is it? <coughs> Judges 8 can serve as a sort of, of antidote to that kind of thinking that is deceptive, it's subtle, and we find ourselves thinking, only God would give me a victory or deliver me from X, Y, or Z, then I wouldn't have the kind of struggle I have now with temptations to sin. We may naturally think that temptation and sin is most to be found in defeat or under oppression or in seasons of darkness and difficulty, but the reality is the final part of Gideon's narrative helps us to see that victory does in fact bring its own temptations. And these temptations may even exceed those that we faced in the darker days. So I'm going to put before you three. There are, there are others here, but we're going to dwell on three in particular. Three temptations that we see come about in the life of Gideon, in the life of, of God's people, as an immediate consequence of a victory. First is, and this is not surprising, the first one won't surprise you, pride. I mean, that, that was an obvious one. That You could have guessed that one. If I'd given you a pop quiz, and imagine what kind of temptations would come in the midst of a victory. Well, pride would be at the top of the list. So that doesn't, the scriptures don't disappoint. We'll deal with that. But secondly, fear. Now, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That fear would be a byproduct of victory. But it is. And thirdly, Poor leadership. You know, we expect poor leadership in hardship, in bad situations, not in when things are going really well. We're going to see all three of these here in Gideon. Pride, fear, and poor leadership. And, and certainly true that each of these temptations are also could be present in other circumstances, dark circumstances. But we expect, we expect distress in the midst of defeat. We expect temptations under oppression. Sometimes we don't expect these kinds, of these kinds of temptations to come or maybe even intensify when a victory is won. Let's read together. This is a longer passage, but we're going to read it all. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 24, and I'm going to read through the end of chapter 8. So hear now together the word of the living God. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as beth and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as beth and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands 
of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the, Mount, as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men at Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbahah and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. When he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and to his family, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. And Jerubael, son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Perith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubael, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It should not come as a surprise to us that pride is the first and most frequent temptation that rears its ugly head in victory. That's expected. Uh, That's not surprising to us that men would be tempted to pride. But we see this glaringly, not only as we work through it, and we'll see this later in the sermon of Gideon himself, But first of all, we see this among the sons of Ephraim, among the Ephraimites. As as Gideon, after he puts Midian to flight, after the Lord turns every sword upon their neighbor among the Midianites, they go to flight, 
Gideon and his 300 men are pursuing them. But tactically, he needs more men urgently to go and seal off the crossing places of the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs north and south. And so all the activity of the, the, the battle against Midian has been on the west side of the Jordan, but the Midianites are escaping to the east side. And we're going to see the narrative progress from west to east and then back across to the west during the, the course of chapter 7, or chapter 8, I'm sorry. So Gideon asked the Ephraimites, basically, saddle up quickly, respond quickly, go seal off the crossing points of the Jordan River and and its tributaries, trying to keep these 15,000 Midianites that had not been killed from escaping along with these two princes. Well, the Midianites are successful, at least in part, in capturing the two princes. Some of the men had escaped, the, the armies had escaped, but they captured Oreb and Zeb and they killed them. So now there are two new monument places, one named a rock of Oreb and the other one a wine press named Zeb. But then they come to Ephra, they come to Gideon, and they're angry. And they said, why, why have you gone out to fight without us? What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? Now, whether or not these same Ephraimites were part of the 22,000 that left when Gideon stood before the 32,000 and said, if anybody's afraid, they can go home, could have been some of these very men. Or at least they would suppose that they would not have been some of those men who were fearful. Now, after a victory, all of a sudden, they're brave. They're bold. Why didn't you call us to come and fight? We would have been eager to fight. Or perhaps this is part of the 9,700 that were dismissed at the watering hole when they didn't lap as the others lapped. And the Lord sent 9,700 men home, sent them back to their tents. But you know, back in chapter 7 and verse 2, I told you last week, the interpretive key for chapter 7 is the Lord saying to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into, into your hand. What was the reason that God gave? Why did God say this is too many? It's because he knew the people would boast if they thought they had earned the victory. Well, the the Ephraimites prove that the Lord was exactly right, isn't he? The Lord was exactly right. The fact that pride is a particular temptation and victory shouldn't surprise us, but the manner in which this temptation appears sometimes does surprise us. The men of Ephraim end up vindicating God's actions by proving that boasting is exactly what they wanted to do. They were angry with Gideon because they didn't get to share in the glory. They didn't get to boast. They didn't get to sit around their own fireside hearths and say, we were there the day that Midian was routed. Have you ever found this to be true in your own perhaps spiritual victories? Perhaps you've, you've battled against a particular sin, and, and, and recently God's given you a measure of victory over it, and now what are you tempted to do? You're tempted to boast in yourself. You're tempted to kind of stick out your chest and say, look how good I am. And then worse, you're tempted to look down on someone else who's still struggling with that or another sin. And perhaps, perhaps you've battled the consequences of another person's sin or folly. And you're beginning to see some relief, or or maybe even more closely to the circumstances we have here with the Ephraimites. Maybe someone near to you has, has really seen some progress in their sanctification. They've seen a measure of spiritual victory, and, and you're tempted to pride, or maybe even sour grapes. That you're not getting credit for this. You know, we, we learned years ago that, that it's really helpful to encourage our, our older you know, teenagers and so forth, sons and daughters, to go and, and, and learn to practice. It's a skill. Learn to practice what it means to find safety in a multitude of counselors, to find wisdom in a multitude of counselors. You ever had this dynamic where you've been telling a son or daughter something, and they go and they haven't really heard you, and they go and they talk to Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, and they, tell, and they come back, Dad, guess what they said? That's great. 
Wish I'd thought of that. But aren't we tempted at that point? Because we want to share the glory. We want to say, well, I was the wise father who, who so coached up my son or my daughter. But ought we not to rejoice that there was a victory no matter what? Ought we not to rejoice that our, our sons and daughters are learning by practice to walk in wisdom? In those situations, there's many more like it. Are we not in those moments tempted to pride? To tempted to, to want to boast in ourselves? Are we not tempted to grumble before the Lord that we don't get a share in the victory, which, of course, we think we deserve, don't we? The Ephraimites, here, what's, what's underneath this? The Ephraimites thought, we deserve this. I mean, we're the Ephraimites. And there was a certain unique pride among the Ephraimites in terms of they, they, were, they were politically more stable and more established at this point in history than most of the other tribes, just probably as a function of their geography. So I don't think, brothers and sisters, it's difficult for you to see that pride is a particular temptation when there's a victory that the Lord has given to us. But will you give some specific thought and meditation to the various ways that pride can rear its ugly head? It might surprise you in the manner that it comes. As a woman, as a daughter, as a sister, as a wife, as a mother, as a neighbor, how might this temptation to pride grip your heart in a season of success, in a season of, of fruitfulness? As a, as a man, as a, as a son, as a brother, as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor, as a leader, how, how might this temptation provoke you in, in a season of fruitfulness, a season of, of victory? So victory certainly brings its own temptations, and, and chief among them is, is pride, but that's, that's not the only temptation we see. We also see in this narrative the sin of fear rendering, rearing its head as well. Look at this second paragraph, beginning in, paragraph, in, in verse 4 of chapter 8. We see this with the men of Succoth and Penuel. They're fearful even after a victory. And we might be overly quick to condemn them. But let's, let's understand something geographically. Again, have in your mind, here's the, the north-south line that is the Jordan River. Succoth and Penuel are on the east side of the Jordan. They have no geographical buffer. There are no other tribes standing between them and Midian. So they're thinking, okay, you've got a victory, Gideon. That's wonderful. But what if Midian regroups? Who, are they, who is he coming after first? It's going to be us. It's great for you. You get to go back on the other side of the Jordan. We live here. It's almost like the, the, the early settlers, right around where we live now, maybe even a little further westward of here, during the time when the Comanches ruled and reigned over the, the plains and the prairies of Texas. To, to be without a fortified city, to be without a fortress, was, was certain death. Note the contrast here between the men of Ephraim, who were boasting in their strength, boasting in their prowess. Gideon, why did you not include us? And it was only Gideon's sort of political flattery that calmed them down. It was political flattery, calms them down. We said, eh, what's the gleanings? Come on, the gleanings in Ephraim are better than the whole harvest in, in my hometown. So, you know, and you've, you've got to capture the two princes. I mean, come on, what have I done? So he flattered them, and they, they bought it. But notice the contrast between those boastful men and the men of Succoth and Penuel. Gideon comes to them. He's got his notice, and the, and the author here makes it clear to us. Remember how many men did he start with? 300. How many men does he have? 300. Not one of his men have been lost. Not one. 120,000 of the Midianites died. Not one of the 300 men that Gideon probably thought was an insufficient number, not one was lost. And they were, even un they were unarmed, except for a trumpet and a pitcher and a torch. But all 300 men are crossing back over, but they're exhausted. And they come first to Succoth. And they didn't ask the rulers, the elders, the leaders of Succoth to send their own sons to die in battle. That's not what they asked for. They asked for bread. They asked for food. They asked for physical sustenance. This sort of, I think, prefigures in a way 
the episode when David was running and his men were fleeing from Absalom, and they go, and, and the, the priest gives them the showbread. And later on, the Lord Jesus would point to that and say they were innocent. They did not sin. The moral law to preserve life trumps the ceremonial law to preserve the bread of the presence, the showbread. But it's a similar situation. The men were not just, you know, like we're going to be here as we start smelling the crockpots here in a few minutes. It's not going to be that kind of hunger. It's the kind of hunger where you're genuinely famished. You're physically weak. You haven't eaten, and you need to be strengthened. And Gideon asked the men of Succoth, and, and they said, notice what they say. The officials of Succoth, this is verse 6, are the hands, literally the palms, are the palms of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army. It's very likely a reference to an ancient Near Eastern practice to dismember your opponent, at least to cut off their hands, maybe their big toes, gouge out their eyes. Basically, do you have some sort of evidence? Again, the Comanches would scalp someone as an evidence of a kill. Do you have the palms of of our enemies to prove to us that they are no longer a threat? And Gideon's, well, no, but, but God's going to give them to us. Sorry, Gideon, we can't help you. And Gideon threatens them physically. And we're going to see if he makes good on that promise. But then he goes to the next town, to Penuel, and they say the same thing. Now, as I said, they had probably good reason, humanly speaking, to be afraid. So we ought not to rush to condemn them or to think that, oh, if I were there, I would have done differently. But this is not an excuse. They were sinful in being inhospitable by refusing to provide even humanitarian assistance. The men of Succoth, the men of Penuel, were in sin. They refused to help their brothers in a time of need. But we can still at the same time understand their fear. And it's very common to have both reactions to the very same event, both a pride and a fear. But what were they they afraid of? They were afraid that the Lord had not really given a complete victory. There was a measure of victory. They they understood that. They had no doubt witnessed Midianites fleeing. But they were not quite convinced that the victory was total, that it was complete. Saints, isn't this true in our everyday Christian lives? Has not Christ purchased for you a forgiveness of sins? Has he not purchased for his people an absolute and total victory over sin and death? And yet what happens when we're asked to help our brothers and sisters? We think, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid if I do this, then maybe I'll lack in something else. Or if I help in this way, I'll be exposed. My own weaknesses will be exposed. Has not Christ promised one day to glorify all those who belong to him? Has he not given a victory over even the dominion of sin within us? And yet, are we not often just like the men of Succoth and Penuel? Do we not, in a sense, say to Christ, our captain, is this sin already in your hand? Don't we think in the same kind of way sometimes? Is the sin, Lord, is the sin of my covetousness really already in your hand? Is is the sin of my grumbling already possessed by you? Has that already been defeated? Is the sin of my lust, my anger, my my pride, has that already been delivered into your hand? Can can you relate to this? See, when when you fear to call your, your faults, your weaknesses, when you... When you fail or you fear to call those sin because you know if you do, you're now accountable for that and you must forsake it. See, when you, we, we want to euphemize our sin sometimes. Well, I wasn't really angry. I was just frustrated. Well, the Lord has promised you will confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin. He doesn't say he will forgive your euphemism. And we want to sort of shade and cover and conceal. We're afraid to admit, I've sinned here, but Christ has pardoned, Christ has forgiven, Christ has promised to cleanse. You may be fearful to confess your sin because you fear the consequences of it. You, you may fear how men will respond if you confess your weakness. Young people, 
I've seen this twin temptation of fear and pride in the day of peace sink many, many, many young men and women. When, when a, a fearing, fearing that he will look ignorant, a young man doesn't admit, he doesn't know how to order his own steps and direct his affairs. So he doesn't go seek godly counsel. He trusts in his own steps, his own wisdom, because he's afraid to admit he doesn't know. How many young women, too proud to admit that she doesn't have what it takes to succeed on her own, have have failed miserably, made shipwreck of her life because she refuses. She's afraid to admit, I'm weak, and I don't know what to do. Now, the, the exceedingly good news that we have, saints, for those who are weak, those fearful sinners, is that your captain, your Lord, is not going to scourge you with briars if you admit you're weak. He's not going to flail you with thorns when you confess that you're afraid. The Lord has given very good news. He's promised rest, in fact, to all those weak and and heavy-laden sinners who come to him and say, will you help me? Your captain and your Lord will not tear down the, alt, the, the tower of your protection. I mean, imagine, this is the threat that Gideon made, and he fulfilled it to the men of Penuel. If you won't help, when I come back, I'm tearing that tower down. Now, what did that tower represent? That was their only means of defense. That was a lookout tower, it was a watchtower. And Gideon threatened to leave them on the plains, utterly defenseless on the east side of the Jordan. Your Savior has not dealt with you in that way. In fact, your Savior has said, as David learned, on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies, we find this in 2 Samuel 22, David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from all of my enemies. Saints, your Savior, not only will he not tear down your only means of protection, he is your stronghold. He is your refuge. He has promised you his own indwelling spirit, stronger than the strongest tower, to protect you, to guard you, and to preserve you until the day of his return. See, pride and fear, maybe even paradoxically, go hand in hand, and particularly in a season of victory. Again, we expect pride. We often don't expect fear. But that's exactly our lived experience, isn't it? Christ has given a victory, a victory far greater than our minds can really comprehend, and yet we live in fear. We're we're in fear of tomorrow. We're in fear of of the consequences of our own sin. We're in fear of how other people might respond if we admit that we're weak. Victory certainly brings its own temptations, and we see the temptation on dramatic display in the person of Gideon. We'll see this in, in, in the next place. There's also a temptation to poor leadership, and again, we expect that when things are bad. But when things are good, we just kind of naturally assume the leadership will be better. That's often not the case. Let's look in the third place at this sin, and it is sin. When we understand the nature of the authority that God has given, the reason for that authority to be given to men, and for its misuse and abuse, it is sin. So in the person of Gideon, we we see dramatically displayed before us the temptations to use his authority, his leadership, his power, the influence that God has given to him in ways that are contrary to his intended purpose. We ought to think about authority, whether in the life of Gideon or any other sphere or circumstance. Authority is a tool, it's an instrument. And whether in the hands of, of, a, of a husband or a father or mother or in a civil magistrate or in the hands of a pastor Anyone else entrusted with the care of someone else, the care and protection and nurture of someone else, God is the the author of that authority. He is the source of that authority. And God intends for that authority to be used for the good of those in their care. 
If you come into my, my wood shop, we have, I have a number of different tools, and each one is a different purpose. And if I try to use that for something contrary to its intended purpose, I'm liable to hurt myself or someone else. It's an instrument. An authority is an instrument designed by God to accomplish God's purposes and to protect those under whose authority. So think about this. This is why in Romans 13 that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gives very clear instruction to civil magistrates. Civil magistrates are to rule in such a way that evildoers are punished and those who do good are rewarded. There's a warning there because God has given that authority for a particular reason. It's also why husbands are admonished to love their wives and not be harsh with them because God has given that authority as an instrument to accomplish a certain good. Uh, Fathers, mothers are commanded to nurture their children and not to exasperate them, not to provoke them to wrath. Again, the authority of a parent is an instrument to be used in the hands of God to accomplish good. It's why pastors are commanded to shepherd the flock of God. Peter says this, that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That authority is given for a particular use. It's a, it's a tool, it's an instrument. An authority is given by God to be a blessing, to be a help to those under that authority. It's designed by God to accomplish his particular ends. So there's a, there's a raging debate in our culture about firearms. We, we know that a firearm in the hands of a moral, lawful man is an instrument of good. It's an instrument of righteousness. It's an instrument of protection. But that very same instrument in the hands of a lawless man, an immoral man, a selfish man, is an instrument of strife and death. But in Judges 8, we see in Gideon this example of an authority that's misused and abused. God has given a place of authority and influence to Gideon to be used for his particular purposes, and we see it go badly. We see it in primarily three ways. The first is is in Gideon's hypocrisy. We see Poor leadership manifested in Gideon first in hypocrisy. What do I mean by that? When he goes to the men of Succoth, when he goes to the men of Penuel, what does he condemn them for? He condemns them for being afraid of Midian. Does it seem ironic to anybody? I mean, five minutes ago, Gideon was so afraid he was hiding in a wine press. And so his hypocrisy, he's expecting something of them that until the Lord poured his spirit upon Gideon, and gave Gideon multiple signs and evidences. Even he was afraid. So he's holding them to a standard that he didn't even meet himself. See, isn't this an often a stumbling block of leadership, and particularly, especially in a season of victory? When things are really moving and going well, a leader may be tempted at that point. A father, a mother may be tempted. An employer, a pastor. Certainly we see this sadly on display in our civil authorities. When things seem to be going well, it's an opportunity to abuse that very authority. In victory, leaders can be tempted to hold others to a higher standard than they are able to reach themselves. We see something else, though, in Gideon. We see this in the second half of chapter 8 as he comes back through he, having made his threats, we find they're not empty threats, as he deals with the men of Succoth and the men of Penuel, he is excessively harsh and authoritarian in his leadership. He's excessively harsh and authoritarian. Notice how he treats them. He comes back, having captured Zeba and Zalmunna, and he comes back, he captures then a young man of Succoth, basically forces him to be a spy and says, I want to know the names of the leaders of the town. And he gives to Gideon the names of 77 men. Now, as we look forward in history, and again, Judges, I think, is probably written, as at least in part, as an apologetic in favor of David over against Saul. Saul does something very similar to this at one point. He kills an entire city. 
men, women, and children. And, and, and there's a picture here, even in Gideon, of saying this is the path of violence in leadership is not a godly path. It is not the healthy path. It is not the path that fosters unity. He comes and he gets the, 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 seven, the 77 men of Succoth. And you'll notice in verse 16, I'm reading from the ESV, it says, he took the elders of the city and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Well, our, our English translations soften that a great deal. Um, the, the, the Hebrew is, is much darker. In fact, listen to George, to George Schwab. I think he describes this, this very well. He says, the language of the Hebrew is haunting. With thorns, Gideon caused the men of Succoth to know. That's what it literally says. The ESV says he taught them a lesson. But it literally says, Gideon caused the men to know. To know what? Schwab says, Gideon made them know him. This is chilling because it connects with the darkest moment in the book of Judges when the men of Gibeah demanded to know a fellow Israelite. We see this in chapter 19. Gideon's actions have a nightmarish parallel to that terrible event. Although Gideon's punishment is not sexual, what he does with those thorns anticipates the violence of Gibeah. And here we have, for the first time in Judges, Israelite on Israelite violence. This new development will continue throughout the book in chapter after chapter. There is no excuse whatsoever for Gideon's conduct here. The men of Succoth were sinful in their response. They should have given material aid to their brothers. No question about that. But this was disproportionate. This was harsh. Now, I can testify to you having been in a number of different spheres myself, in the corporate world, as a parent, as a pastor, I've known this temptation to be excessively harsh. Especially when things are going well, you're making progress, things are going, and then there's that, that one person who stands and seems to question your authority. That one child who seems to kind of bow up, and by golly, we're going to make sure we know who's in charge here. And we overreact. We, we press our authority to make a point to exalt ourselves rather than trusting the Lord's authority here is from his hand. He will enforce his own authority. For a husband to, to sort of rear up and say, I'm going to insist on my wife's submission. Nowhere in the scriptures is a husband told that he has to enforce his wife's submission. That's a dangerous occupation, brothers, to try that. We're not commanded to do that. We're commanded to love. We're commanded to serve. But I know very well that temptation. It's a natural response, isn't it? But it's often a sinful one. In whatever sphere you're in, sometimes when you feel like your authority is being questioned, and that's really what's going on here, it, it really ultimately wasn't about the bread, was it? I mean, sure, Gideon wants to feed his men, but the way that he responds is his own pride. How dare you defy me? So when I come back, I'm going to make sure you know. How quickly can we forget the admonition from God's word that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God? Parents, how easy is it for us to fall prey to this temptation? You know, things are going along pretty well at home. And then there's that one child who asserts his will, asserts her will at just the wrong time. And we roar. We make sure that our authority is unquestioned and unchallenged. Pastorally, sadly, this is, this is a frequent phenomenon in the, in the life of God's churches, and it ought not be pastor who's called to follow after his savior who is meek who's gentle and pastors try to rule with an iron fist it's incompatible with the very nature of the office there's a third way that we see here in the life of Gideon not only his his hypocrisy not only his excessively harsh use of his authority but also embracing the benefits of leadership while avoiding its responsibilities Embracing the benefits, 
but refusing to accept the responsibility. Look, look down at verse 22, chapter 8. The men of Gideon, after all this, I mean, he, after this, this scene where uh, Ziba and Zalmunna are ultimately put to death, and just as a side note, we've seen in the previous judges how the enemies of God were utterly humiliated. We have a break in the pattern here. Gideon attempts to humiliate his enemies in a unique way by having a child kill them. And it doesn't work. So what's recorded here is actually Gideon's humiliation, not Ziba and Zalmunna. But after that, verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, what are the people asking for? They're asking for a dynasty. They're asking him to be king. They're asking him to rule over them as a king with heirs. They don't use the word king, but that's, that's the concept that's here. And it sounds good at first, Gideon's answer. His answer sounds sort of virtuous and righteous. But I think if we scratch beneath the surface and we look at the other evidence, it's not. It's words. Gideon said to them, let me make, no, Gideon said to them, verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Well, that's the good Sunday school answer, isn't it? The Lord is your king, and, and, and that's a true statement. But look what happens next. The very next verse. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you, every one of you, Give me the earrings from his spoil. What is that? That's a tax. That's what kings do. And they they all answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. Now, where does, does that sound familiar to you? People throwing in earrings and fashioning something of gold? Well, it's purposeful. It's supposed to make us recall the golden calf because that's exactly what's going on. And and Gideon makes an ephod, which is no less an idol than the golden calf was. In fact, one commentator makes this comment. She notes that all references to an ephod after Aaron's are to evil transgressions against Yahweh and that the golden calf in Exodus was also made from the rings of gold. It's Exodus 32. Thus, Gideon's ephod evokes the golden calf. From the time of Aaron on, the only time we see an ephod mentioned, it's in a negative sense. It's never in a positive sense. So first of all, Gideon acts like a king by imposing a tax, by asking for a tribute to be given to him. But he doesn't take the responsibility of the kingdom. As the saying goes, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Gideon wants the trappings of royalty, but not the heavy weight of the crown. But we see something else. Gideon also acts like a king by taking to himself a harem. He has a whole harem. But see, in Deuteronomy, as Moses is preaching to the people, preparing them to cross over the Jordan, in Deuteronomy 17, we have this. The Lord gives specific instructions about kings. Now, there's not even going to be a king for generations to come, and yet the Lord is warning them in advance. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. So, so far so good. That's what the people of God are asking for. They're asking Gideon, you delivered us from from the Midianites, you be our king, you and your son and your grandson. But the text in Deuteronomy 17 goes on, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Gideon's two out of three on day one. It's acquired for himself excessive gold. We see this in verse 29. Jerubael, son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons 
his own offspring. So just in case we're tempted to think that this is metaphorical, and that maybe of these 300 men, there were 70 that were just really sun-like to him. No, 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 this is his own offspring, literally from his own loins. And then we're told just in case, he had many wives. And a concubine and Shechem. Well, this is very kingly in terms of the trappings of royalty, all the benefits of the leadership. But again, he doesn't take the responsibility for it. But there's another clue. There's another clue that, that Gideon is taking on sort of the mantle of, uh, of, of the, the benefits, not the mantle, but the benefits of leadership without the heaviness of the crown. In verse 31, his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now, why is that significant? We'll see next chapter that's, that's significant historically. But the name Abimelech is significant. You know what the name Abimelech means? My father is king. The name means my father is king. Now, perhaps the concubine gave the name, hoping that Gideon would become king. But Gideon didn't overrule that. So we see here a leader who's willing to take the benefits of leadership and forsake the responsibility. This is a particular temptation when things are going well. Because when things are going well, there's spoils. There's money. There's resources. And a leader may be tempted to take that and forsake the responsibility. It's important for us to remember that these temptations, these various temptations, the pride, the fear, the the sinful use of, of authority can come under any circumstances, but the reality is we may be less on guard for them when things are going well. In in a season of of growth, a season of victory, a season where it's been peaceful. We don't really have, we don't seem like, those days where you don't feel like you're being attacked from every front. Let our guard down. The scriptures are very clear, though, that we may indeed face temptations in, in either Hardship or ease. We will face temptations whether we're being oppressed or whether in a season of prosperity. In fact, Proverbs 30 takes what Gideon has in by inference in narrative form and makes it explicit for us. In Proverbs 30, verse 7, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Proverbs teaches us, this book of wisdom teaches us, that in either prosperity or in adversity, we can equally face these kinds of temptations. In fact, I think Gideon helps us to see that we may be especially prone. Maybe the, intempti- maybe the intensity of those temptations isn't exactly higher, but we're less guarded against them in a time of prosperity. So pride, fear, ungodly leadership are all temptations that come in victory. Victory brings its own temptations. We ought not to assume that when things are going well, that the spiritual battles are also at ease. That day is coming, but we haven't reached it yet. The day of the Lord will come, and at that point, we, we will have eternal peace. We will have eternal rest. The land here, and it's, a par- it's paradigmatic in the sense the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. 40 years, an entire generation had peace, had prosperity. But also what happened is they reverted to the idolatry. I, think it's, I don't think it's anybody, by any accident then in verse 29, we sort of revert to, to Gideon's name, Jerubael, the son of Joash, as if the narrator wanted to remind us, don't forget who, where Gideon came from. His father was an idolater. His father literally owned the altar where Baal was worshipped in the Asherah. So we go back to chapter 6 when Gideon was called and he went in the middle of the night to tear down. That was at his father's place. Jerubael, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house, 
He had 70 wives, his own offspring. He had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And this is what we've come to expect now in the cycle of the judges. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done in Israel. But we should not neglect to note one of the significant lessons in the life of Gideon. A man who begins weak and cowardly and ends sinfully bold, and yet the Lord uses him. Gideon is mentioned, enshrined there in Hebrews 11, in what we know as the Hall of Fame of Faith. Gideon is still someone we can look to, and so this was an example of faith. He stepped out and believed God would deliver his people. And if God can use even a sinful man like Gideon, who was filled with his spirit to accomplish his purposes, what could God do with a sinless man filled with his spirit? The answer is infinitely. He could infinitely do all that he purposed to do. Gideon leaves us longing for a deliverer who, who won't fall to the very same temptations to which Gideon succumbed. Gideon, in a sense, is a negative type. We've talked about types of Christ. Gideon, in a sense, is a negative type. Where Gideon and the Israelites were proud and boasting in their own strength, Christ was humble, even to death on a cross. He submitted himself to his Father's will. Where Gideon and all of Israel were fearful in the face of their enemies, when, when they succumbed to the temptation of sinful fear, our Lord Jesus was courageous. He was unwavering all the way to the end. Where Gideon refused to lead well. Where Gideon misused his authority for his own benefit and for his own glory. Our sinless and perfect Savior sacrificed himself. He gave freely of himself so that all of his people could live not for 40 years of peace, not even for 80 years, but for eternity to live in peace before him. This is what Christ has purchased. If you are in Christ, this is yours. What will you do with it? How will you respond? Will you recognize that even in that victory that Christ has given, the temptations for us have not gone away? In fact, there's a new set of temptations that have come. Will we, will we consider those honestly before the Lord? Will we ask for his Spirit's help to seek those things out in us, to encourage one another all the more as we see that day approaching? So let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father, our Lord, and our God, we give you thanks for the work that you have done, for your word that has preserved your great works, that we can read and study and, by your Spirit's help, seek understanding. Um, Lord, will you help us not to see these things as just historical accounts of your working with your people of old, but to see that, as Paul teach, teaches us, that these things were written down for our example, both for good and for, for evil. We can see there the good examples, we can see the evil ones. Will you give us the grace to, to see ourselves in the midst of this? As we, will we see ourselves in the men of Ephraim? Will you help us to see ourselves in the men of of Succoth and Penuel. We help us to see ourselves in the, in the temptations to which Gideon succumbed. We help us to live not at ease, but on guard. Help us to gird up our loins, to put on that spiritual armor that Paul commended to us, to look to Christ our captain as our deliverer, to trust his word, 
to trust His Spirit, to seek to walk in holiness before you. We ask this in His name. Amen.